The first Sunday of 2015, so a year ago Sunday, uh, we started a new series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we titled that series um, Following Jesus in the Real World. And I was thinking about how a lot of people that I know who don't go to church or don't know much about the Bible seem to think that the Bible's full of these super high ideals, and people that are in the Bible are super close to God. Um, if you think that, you probably haven't read the Bible recently because the people in the Bible are mostly screwed up people, and if they're particularly close to God in the Bible, it's probably because he's either reprimanding them or coming to save their skin because they've got themselves in some kind of trouble. The Bible is all about following Jesus in the real world, but there are certain letters that Paul wrote, Ephesians, for example, that are the ideals of what it means to look like the church. Ephesians is one of my favorite books. It's, it's raises the bar super high. It talks about in a perfect world, if we're all living in the power of the Spirit, the church could look like this. All right, 1 Corinthians is not like that. 1 Corinthians is a group of early Christians, of first-generation followers of Jesus, who were having some very serious issues. And because of that, I think it's a, it's a good series for us to go through, because we live in the real world. We live in a pluralistic society. We live in, uh, in a sense, in a time and space when it's not just black and white, cut and dry. For example, Jesus says, love your enemies. That is a great thing to teach your children, something wonderful to strive for, but it's much harder to actually practice when someone you know or love or you yourself have been deeply hurt or degraded or humiliated. It takes practice, doesn't it, to love your enemies? It takes patience and perseverance and frankly sometimes counseling and undoing of a lot of emotional wounds and scars in order to get to a place where we're healthy enough to do that. My point is that following Jesus in the real world is a possibility, but it takes effort and wisdom and the grace of Jesus himself. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think it help us navigate life in following Jesus in at least two ways. There's probably lots more, but let's stick with two. It can offer us encouragement. I kind of like the fact that Oh my gosh, if these first-generation disciples could screw things up, we're kind of normal too, okay? There's a little bit encouraging that Paul has to write to these folks um, and help them out as well. Second, 1 Corinthians can offer us guidance in how to approach recurring issues in culture. So, so far in this series that we started last year, we have addressed topics such as pride and selfishness and sexual ethics, favoritism, worship priorities— and discipleship. Pretty, like, important stuff that I wrestle with on a regular basis, and probably you do too. This evening, we're going to listen to a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians on a topic that's going to be foreign to most of us. The details deal with idolatry and pagan temples and eating sacrificed food and the interplay between knowledge and love. Now, these topics are still very relevant in much of the world. Uh, in fact, Courtney Lancaster, is she in here? Well, I know she's here today. She must be with the kids. She was a missionary in Japan and said that she would sometimes go to a Japanese family's house where there would be food that was left to the ancestors that had passed on, and it was offered in veneration, and she would feel funny. Should I eat this or not? You know, so, so it, and if you're in African culture or some tribal cultures, you still are going to to come across this. But most of us in Bellingham um, don't go to pagan temples, aren't tempted to go to pagan temples on a regular basis. 
However, if you stay with me, I hope to show you how this passage contains a very important word for us today. So, would you stand with me? That'll get the blood flowing a little bit and show reverence for the word. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. All of it is 1 through 13. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, but that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all people have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care with this liberty of yours, or these rights of yours. They don't, that they don't bec somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you and have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, or through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose, Christ, for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when he is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Lord, we offer this time to you, asking for your help through the power of your Spirit. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of opening up the Word so that it is beyond information and is transformative in our hearts. Once again, we come to you needing help to get into this text that seems so foreign to us. Help us, Lord, to persevere and to receive what it is you have to say to us. Amen. So our passage begins with the words, now concerning or about such and such. <clears throat> Some of the sections in 1 Corinthians deal with Paul responding to things he's heard. Remember in the beginning of this letter that Chloe's people, these are people from the church, Chloe and her family and her friends had come and told Paul, who was in Ephesus at the time writing this letter, hey Paul, there's some stuff in the church that's messed up. And when, when that happens, Paul just responds and he brings up issues. But sometimes we know that Paul is responding to a letter that the Corinthian church wrote him, either stating some facts that he disagreed with or asking him some questions. And when they do that and he responds to that letter, he always begins a new section with, now concerning. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. You would think when Paul says, and now concerning things sacrificed to idols, that he would jump right in and talk about things sacrificed to idols, or things associated with idol worship. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he starts talking just briefly about knowledge. And he writes, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, it's hard to understand what he's talking about here. 
who is everybody that has this knowledge, and what knowledge exactly is he talking about? Most likely what he's doing is quoting a saying, we all have knowledge, uh, that was a slogan to the first Corinthians. As we're going to see in a little bit, the knowledge that they're talking about is with reference to things sacrificed to idols. But just for a moment, Paul takes the conversation up a whole degree. He takes it out of the specifics of idol worship and pagan temples, and he frames his whole argument in a larger theme. Mainly, that knowledge by itself puffs up, makes proud, leads to arrogance. But love edifies, builds up. Love is constructive. It is good for the body of Christ and for the soul. Paul, of course, is not against knowledge. He is not an anti-intellectual. In fact, Paul was an extremely educated man, and many scholars who study his rhetoric think he's a brilliant, uh, his rhetoric is brilliant for the way that he breaks things down and uses forms of, uh, of common rhetoric in that time period. So Paul is well-educated. But he knows that knowledge without love is in the end worthless. For Paul, the most important thing to know in life isn't a thing at all. It's a person. It's Jesus the Christ. And the more we know him, and the more, the more we're going to know what love is, and the more love will direct our steps and inform how we use knowledge. Knowledge without love puffs up, but knowledge, knowledge used with a loving heart and a loving person can build up and be constructive. Love is the avenue to knowing God not knowledge. And once Paul establishes this framework, he moves into the heart of the issue with the linking word, therefore. Therefore. Basically what he's saying is, therefore, I do agree with you wholeheartedly, Corinthians, that there's one God. You're right about that. We share that knowledge. And since there's only one God, idols are not really gods. And meat sacrificed to idols is just meat. It can't defile us. Paul agrees intellectually with that knowledge. But here's the issue. Not everyone in the church had that same knowledge. Oh, they may have heard it before. They may have known it uh, on a test and been able to comprehend it with their minds, but in their conscience, they still believed they were doing something evil when they ate this meat sacrifice to idols or when they went to temples and worshiped in this way. So Paul agrees that food is just food. Meat is just meat, no matter how it's cooked or who it's cooked for. Even if it's sacrificed to idols, it's just meat. But for those who know and deeply believe that idols are real, that meat takes on a whole different meaning. And when one of your brothers and sisters sees you out in town dining at a pagan temple, they might be tempted to join in, even though they believe it to be wrong as a matter of conscience. Now let me just stop right here for a moment, recognizing that it's been a year since we started this series, and we need to figure some things out about idol worship in Corinth, okay? Corinth is a city in Greece, but in Paul's day, Corinth was actually not a Greek colony. It was a Roman colony. It all started in 146 BC. Rome was extending its borders as the empire spread, and Corinth was a very specific city, a very important city in the resistance, kind of like the Rebel Alliance. I just make these connections, right? But it was the, the center of the Achaean League, which was devoted to a, uh, uh, resisting the Roman Empire spread. 
They fought heroically, but eventually the Achaean League was defeated. As a lesson to all future rebels, Rome completely destroyed Corinth, kind of like Alderaan got it, you remember? In bringing its buildings and temples to ruin. And then Rome salted the earth of Corinth, raised everything, crushed the temples down, and then they declared that this would be a place dedicated to the Roman gods, and no human being was allowed to set foot in Corinth for a century. For a century. But Corinth was too important to sit for long. Let's take a look at where that actually is, Joe. So just so you get the picture, and by the way, our projector popped its bulb here just like half an hour before church, so we're using a backup, which is why it's all funky. But so we have Italy over here. Brianna was just there backpacking around. Italy's over here. We've got the Mediterranean Sea, island of Crete, Turkey, modern-day Turkey with Ephesus. This is actually where Paul is writing from uh, for 1 Corinthians. And you've got Greece right here. And Corinth is a city right on this isthmus. Let's zoom in one level there, Joe. And you can see what strategic importance this would be because much like those of us who are getting ready to go to Panama, right? Panama Canal, so such an important piece of land. What people would do, even before there, there's a canal here now, but back then there wasn't a canal. And people would take their ships, they'd take their goods from these areas, come all the way here, and it was actually so much more efficient and cheaper to offload their goods, have them go just, just a couple miles by mule and cart, and then get on another ship on this side to go over to the Ionian Sea. It was actually cheaper and safer to do that, even after paying, paying taxes and tariffs, than to go all the way around here, where the weather was worse, there were pirates, and it just took a lot longer. So Julius Caesar realized the strategic importance of Corinth. Joe, is there another picture or just those two? Yeah. He realized the importance of Corinth, and in the year 46 BC, he set up a plan to repopulate it. Now, this ancient Greek city um, was, began to be filled with a mixture of retired Roman military officers who, would, who were guaranteed a homestead. I don't know if you remember a gladiator, but you remember when, you, when you're supposed to complete your tour of duty, your time in the military, you would get a plot of land where, where you could you know, raise your family and stuff. So this was some of the plots of land that he would give retired military officials. He also um, sent a bunch of criminals and undesirables, kind of like how uh, New Zealand and Australia, oftentimes you would, England would ship their criminals over there. Um, so it was made up of a very interesting group of people, um, lepers, general undesirables from the Roman provinces. And with most, as with most Roman cities, slaves made up a substantial portion of the population with a tiny percentage of ruling class and senators and civic officials. The picture I'm trying to paint for you here is that Corinth is a melting pot of cultures and religions and languages. Think of all those different ships from different ports coming in um, with their ideas and their language and their goods coming to one place like that. It was also an extremely religious place. Temples from the Roman gods, leftovers from the Greek gods, gods coming from Turkey and all kinds of other places. The custom was for a wealthy person to purchase an animal for sacrifice, a goat, sheep, a cat. And they would bring this animal to the temple of a god or a goddess for many different reasons. And the priest or the priestess of that temple would lead the dining party in some liturgy, and then they would sacrifice the animal. And then they would look at the size of the party, let's say it was 50 people, and they would cook up, barbecue up enough of the animal 
a, a little bit would go to the god or the goddess and the smoke would rise up. The rest of it would be served to the family and the leftovers would be not cooked and shipped off to the meat market for sale. Paul talks about that kind of meat in chapter 10. Temples where in fact, restaurants in the ancient world. That's where you went to cook your meat when you wanted to have a dinner party. But that's not all. Since the rich would, uh, were the only ones who could afford meat most of the time, they were in the positions of power. So let's say Ryan here is a senator class, and he, um, he's a wealthy patron, and so he wants to have this dinner party at the Temple of Brent, and so he's, he brings his fattened calf in there. Um, and what he would do, though, is leverage his power in his position. So he would invite, let's say... Um, Marcus is an, an accountant. You can be an accountant in this world, too. Um, uh, uh, no IT guy. Let's say you're an aqueduct man. Um, uh, you can be a doctor, because you are. And, and then, uh, Jason, you, why don't you be in charge of permitting, because Ryan wants to add on to his villa. Uh, Gary, um, I don't know. What do you want to be? Uh, how about the mortician? Uh, <laughs> no, we'll make you a lawyer. And Chad can be a lawyer, too. And he always, So he invites all these people. Be, to this party, and, and the expectation is they eat and they feast, but when Ryan needs a favor a month from now, three months from now, when his wife's having a baby, he gets the doc to come, and when he's having a hard time getting that permit to get the new addition, he knows where to call, because you all owe him now, and this is how the world works, so it wasn't necessarily just for religious reasons, it was for political, for networking reasons, and of course, it was all men, and when everyone was well-fed and had drunk lots of wine, a whole array of prostitutes would be paraded for the men to choose for after dinner, for dessert. So you see, dining at these temples was more than just a meal sacrificed to a false god or false goddess. It was corrupt through and through. And here's the interesting thing, is that the Jews and the Christians during this time period, mid-early 50s A.D., were exempt from having to participate in these things. Now, I know that that sounds weird because, hey, weren't Christians persecuted and Jews persecuted? In the Maccabean period, when the Greeks invaded Israel, the, the, the famous martyr stories come from these um, Eleazar and these, these Jewish leaders who would not eat meat sacrificed to idols, and they paid in their life for it. Horrible torture. Now, here's the thing. Caesar is a pragmatist. He says, that's bad PR. I really don't need to make martyrs out of these people. I just want them to comply so they don't have to go to the sacrifices. And the Christians got to ride that wave early on in the church. It wasn't until the end of the first century, early second century, that you get crazies like uh, Nero and Domitian who start to then kill Christians for not going to idol worship. But during this period, they did not have to participate in these temples. So if the Corinthian Christians didn't have to go to the temples for meals, and if the issue, um, if this wasn't an issue apparently when Paul was actually there planting the church, then why did it all of a sudden become an issue a few years after Paul left Corinth and was in Ephesus? It's all because of some games. Seriously. You've heard of the Olympic Games, of course. But second to the Olympic Games were the Isthmian Games right there on the outside of Corinth. And in 146 BC, when the Romans crushed Corinth, the games had to move. And for over a century, the games were held in another place. But in the years after Paul left Corinth to the time he's writing this letter, the Isthmian games came back to Corinth for the first time ever. Can you imagine the festivities? 
that would take place. And these games were primarily not just athletic events, they were religious events. There were temples that would just be filled with people worshiping and eating and gluttony. So, what would happen is the important people in town would sponsor worship events at these temples. And undoubtedly, some of the Corinthian Christian Christians who rolled in those circles would have been invited to dinner at some of these temples. What a temptation. How could they pass up this opportunity to network with powerful people who could help advance their positions in society? Right? Because remember, Ryan's the top dog, so if he's holding this thing, oh man, it would really advance your accounting career if you were doing the books for Ryan. And if you did a good job, you know, helping his wife deliver that baby, Dr. Uh, Connor, you, you know, you got anything you want if you ever need a favor down the road. So you see how this works. After all, hey, we have knowledge. It's just food, right? Their gods aren't real. There's only one God. And this is the crux of the issue. They appealed to knowledge as a way of justifying themselves and clearing their own consciences. Now, if you were a male of a certain age, you will remember G.I. Joe. The G.I. Joe series cartoon. At the end of each episode, a different character would give a kind of moralistic um, spot of advice. And in fact, so I'm refreshing my memory on G.I. Joe so I get all this right, <coughs> because it was more my little brother's show than mine. But there are whole websites, if you look up this, the ending to G.I. Joe's, that are almost like weird cultish in style. You've seen the book, like, Everything I Need to Know in Life I Learned in Kindergarten. There's websites that are everything you need to know in life I was on a G.I. Joe episode, and that compiles all the sayings at the end. It's really weird. So here's a couple. Uh, what do you, and, th and this is from the guy, uh, I think the character's name is Barbecue. He's the dude with the flamethrower who torches people. But at the end of the show, he says, if your house is on fire, remember, if a fire breaks out in your house, always test the door first. If it's hot, find another exit or yell for help. And then the dude Mutt, who like has the killer dog, he says, don't pet strange dogs. Don't run. Walk away slowly. Never try and pet an animal you don't know. Leave them alone. And then the third one is, what to do if you catch fire? I think there's a theme here, like they're afraid kids are going to catch on fire or something. Don't hide in the fridge was a good one. Don't try and beat a train. Anyway, the punchline after all these is, of course, and knowing is, yeah, now you know. Knowing is half the battle. Exactly. Nobody's saying that knowledge isn't important, but knowledge is only half the battle. If I know that hiding in the refrigerator isn't good, but I go in there and I become a human popsicle, I've lost the war, right? Or That's where the metaphor kind of breaks down, but you get my point. The Corinthians had knowledge, but that's only half the battle. Paul might even go as low as 40% of the battle because without love, knowledge can be leveraged to selfish ends. The Corinthians defending their claim to attend these dinner parties at the pagan temples were right that there is only one God and that idols are completely false. But they are mistaken if they think that attending these temples was something they could do without partaking in evil. And there are two reasons for that. First, these parties weren't just about religion. They're about social ambition and gluttony and drunkenness and premarital and extramarital sex. And so actually, they were about religion. It's just that those particular religions included gluttony and drunkenness and sexual indulgence as part of their worship. Eating food sacrificed to idols was thought to take in the life of that God. I don't know, conscience-wise, that'd be very difficult for me to separate out. 
You say, this isn't real, this isn't real. Oh, this is supposed to be the life of the God going inside of me. But maybe the bigger idols for them weren't the little statues in these things or the gods that the statues represented. Maybe the bigger idols for these Corinthians were gluttony and debauchery rather than any devotion to the Roman pantheon. Certain Corinthians were claiming that they were unaffected by it all since there's only one God, but is it loving to God that they would simulate these idolatrous behaviors? Was it loving to their wives um, to be in a situation where prostitutes are on the menu like dessert? Was it loving to the women and to the boys and to the girls who were slaves, basically, and used as prostitutes for the pleasure of these men. Just because we can rationalize something in our minds to ease our consciences doesn't mean it is good. Hey, our consciences, they can be a gift. They can be strong allies. But they are affected by the sin, and the, the fall and the sin, just like every other part of our body. They are corrupt, and we should never allow our conscience alone to be our guide. Because then our conscience becomes not our guide anymore, but our God. If we rely 100% on our conscience, we're not listening to anybody else. Part of the good news of faith in Jesus is that we receive his Holy Spirit to guide us. And that Holy Spirit, one of his, the jobs of one of his ministries is to convict you and I of sin and to lead us into righteousness. And through Jesus, we have the church. We have one another. We have the council of apostles and prophets and theologians and thinkers and mystics and brothers and sisters that live among us right now to bounce things off of and to help us make sure we're not straying all over the place. Hear the good news. Jesus died to set us free from bondage. He rose victorious over the powers and principalities of the world. There is no evil we need to fear if we are in Christ. Some people went to these temples to try and pay homage to a God who would then curse another God who would protect them from such and such. Right? We don't need to do that. We, if we're in Christ, he's, he's more powerful. He's defeated those powers. There's no evil spirits that Jesus can't protect us from. There's no emotional wounds that he cannot heal. So that means we're free. We're free, then, from the need to self-medicate, free from our addictions, free from trying to be something or someone we are not, just to fit in. Because the gospel says you fit in. The gospel says that you are part of the family of God, that he believes you are precious, precious enough to die for you and to rise and to send his spirit to live inside of you. You are, you fit. You don't have to pretend to be something else. That's, that's the freedom of the gospel. So the question is then, how are we using our knowledge? How are we using our freedom? Here's a, a simple series of couple questions in discerning whether or not, <coughs> excuse me, to participate in something that you're doing, right? How does this thing I'm doing, or this thing I'm saying, or this thing I'm posting on Facebook or Twitter or the other avenues that we voyeuristically puke our ideas out on people, how does this express the love of God? Simple question. How does this express his love? Number two, how does this express the love of God to others? Am I representing love 
to others, the love of God. The second reason that Paul forbids eating at the temple feasts is because of what it could do to the heart and conscience of a weaker brother or sister. You see, many Corinthian Christians had been pagan Gentiles their entire lives. They recently converted to Christianity. Paul was just there a couple years, few years before writing this letter. Many of these people had 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years been steeped in Gentile and pagan idolatry. And they've come out of that. They've been part of the darkness of drinking until blacking out and sleeping around and being slaves to the whims and opinions and demands of the wealthy and the powerful who invited them to those parties. And once they began to follow Jesus, they realized we're free. And they began to realize that Jesus was Lord and Savior, not the emperor, and that Jesus was God incarnate, the creator of heaven and earth and author of salvation. He's Lord and not Caesar. And that means if I'm in with him through faith in Jesus, I don't need to pretend to be in with these other people. And now the so-called knowledgeable and the stronger brethren who are trying to say going to temples is just fine as long as you say this meat I'm eating is in honor of Jesus. But here's the problem. As soon as a person who left that lifestyle re-enters the scene, forces beyond their control begin to grab them. The smell of perfumed girls. The incense burning. And that music that they always play. Oh, that music. And then the wine begins to lower their defenses. And all of a sudden, they are enveloped by the demonic quicksand of the path to destruction. This is why Paul says in chapter 10, flee from idolatry. Not because their gods are real, but because you can make them real. The worship of false gods leads to idolatry and addiction to a false kind of life. Jesus came to grant eternal life. And when I say eternal life, or when the Bible says eternal life, it's in two senses. We usually take it as life that lasts forever. That is one sense. But the other sense is eternal kind of life, God life. And that's the kind I want to really focus on because I'm not dead yet. I love eternal life for later, but I'm still here, hopefully for a good number of years. Amen? Right? So I want the God life in me. That's another aspect of eternal life. That's what Paul is saying. You don't need all this other junk that you've been medicating yourself with. You, your brothers and sisters were free from that, and you want to tempt them to go back there? Uh Uh-uh. I'm not having that. Notice what Paul is not saying. This is important. Paul is not saying, beware of offending your fundamentalist sisters in Christ. And Paul is not saying, beware of offending your liberal brothers in Christ. Paul is not saying, you should really worry about what other Christians are thinking about you. He's telling the Corinthians to act out of a place of love. To let love temper our knowledge. This is not about being politically correct. It is not about offending. In fact, I would say it would be a misapplication to apply this text directly to things like dancing, whether or not we should dance, whether or not we should have an occasional drink after work, whether or not we should watch this movie or that movie. 
Paul intentionally avoids giving a black and white ruling on these things. This is talking about selfishly putting our rights above the well-being of someone whom Christ died for. Does that make sense? So it might apply to movies or drinking or dancing or any of those things, but you can't just say it does every time because we're talking about different brothers and sisters in Christ. We're talking about different issues. I don't know what your issue is. I've got lots. And the more we get to know each other, the more we can respect each other and act out of love, not black and white rules. You see that? Paul's not a fundamentalist here. Paul has made up his mind about how he's going to love these people. If eating meat sacrificed to idols causes a brother or sister to stumble, to be scandalized, to fall back into the black hole of ruin, he'd rather give up his right to exercise his freedom than harm somebody else. And in theory, we're all sitting here, nod, yeah, I would do that too. What about, I mean, there's a lot of great things that we enjoy that are not sinful things that might really cause someone else to, to stumble? Are we willing to say no to a freedom of a right that we have in Christ right, to be a blessing to someone else? Paul is willing to love sacrificially. Love is the God of the universe emptying himself, becoming a human being, and giving himself in death for us. Love is the power, the motivation behind God raising Jesus from the grave. Love is what fills us when we place our trust in Jesus the Christ. Knowledge is half the battle, but with the love of Jesus, we leverage knowledge for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Thanks be to God. Lord, uh, thank you for this word preserved over so many centuries. Thank you for helping us get behind a foreign text to see um, the love shining through. Thank you for our brother, your servant Paul, who has wrestled through this and given us an example of love. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for your vital ministry in enlightening each one of us and helping us to see if you're calling on us to give something up or if you are strengthening our resolve in a decision we've already made, would you please help us to be sensitive um, to others rather than always grasping at our own rights? Lord, we confess that we live in a culture that is all about getting what's ours, getting our due, we confess that a lot of times we, we enjoy that. We're used to it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be otherworldly. May the grace of Jesus the Christ, the gospel, the good news, take root and penetrate and affect the way that we see our world, even though we're so steeped within it. Have mercy on us, Lord. Amen.